You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, a podcast hosted by me, Brett Fisher. I'm a DevOps online course creator, consultant, and a Docker captain. This podcast contains clips from my weekly YouTube live show, where I host a real-time Ask Me Anything style chat with guests and anyone who shows up on YouTube chat, many of whom are students of my Docker courses. You can find out more information, including show notes for this episode at brettfisher.com slash podcast. That's B-R-E-T-F-I-S-H-E-R dot com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I talk with Docker captain Antonis Kalapetis about various development in Docker topics. Uh, he's a friend of mine that we've known each other for know, years now in the Docker captains program. It's Antonis Kalapetis. Uh, he is in Athens, Greece right now. And welcome to the show. Welcome. I mean, hello, Brett. And it's really nice to be here. And I'm really looking forward to having lots of fun with you. Yeah, this is going to be great. Uh, and thanks last minute for uh, jumping in. I'm, I pinged you earlier this week, or I think it was yesterday. And uh, you're like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So that was great. Um, I think it was two days ago for Greece. So it's oh, fine. it was two days ago. Yeah, see, and you're like... Uh, you're seven hours ahead of us or something like that. So it's, yep. a, it's, a, it's weird. I don't understand time. So let me give you a quick shot of what, uh, who Antonis is. He's, uh, he's calling from sunny Athens, Greece. It, it's sunny. And he's been involved in Docker since the early days pre-1.0. He's creating in-browser development environments with containers at SourceLayer. That's what he was doing. But now he's also with eFood Delivery Hero. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. He's a Docker captain, and he likes to talk about containers and DevOps at meetups there in Athens and conferences and hangout uh, and hands-on trainings, uh, as well as hanging out on shows like this. Um, and we'll put some links in. You can fi- He has got a website. You can find him on Twitter. You can read his blog, all that stuff. Welcome to the show. I'm glad we get to hang out for this fun time talking about Docker, DevOps, and all these things. So you... Uh, you and I met at DockerCon Seattle, Austin, maybe? I think the first time. Oh, I, I haven't <laughs> thought about this before the show. So. That's right. We should have planned so, ahead. Uh, I think it might have been um, Texas. Might have been Texas. Maybe Barcelona? Or maybe oh, no, I, was, I didn't go to Barcelona. So You didn't go. Okay, so maybe it was Austin? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I was in. My first one was San, uh, Seattle in 2016. 2015, 2016, something like that. I was in Seattle, so maybe it was uh, Austin. I Austin, which was anyway. which we're going back to next year. It's fantastic, and uh, mm-hmm. Austin's a great, great city. I love that place, and uh, I'm excited that we're going to be back there this year. So, um, those of you on, thanks so much for joining. We've got uh, we're going to talk about some stuff today. We're going to talk about the Windows subsystem for Linux version two that's coming out next year. It's exciting that it's in uh, sort of early, early pre-release now, but we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about, because uh, Antonis does development inside of containers, so he talks a lot about that. And, uh, of course, we can't, uh, we can't forget that uh, happy birthday, America, 4th of July. Uh, this is limited edition Docker mug from Berlin, which I will be back in the fall doing Docker Swarm and Kubernetes workshops at GoToBerlin. So if you're curious about that, nice. uh, yeah, you can go to, I think it's brettfisher.com slash workshops or workshop. I think it's maybe workshops. Anyway, I've got a list of workshops I do and where I'm going to be. And if you're going to be in Berlin or if you live anywhere in 
Europe and go to as a conference that you're interested in. It's a pretty great time, and they do these master classes. So I'll be spending all day telling you, basically, you're going to be deploying applications on Swarm and Kubernetes and then learning the difference between the two. And that's going to be a lot of fun, and it's also going to be a lot of slides. So you'll, you'll be exhausted by the end of the day, which is my goal. So, uh, Antonis, tell me a little bit about your, about your background. How did you first get started with Docker, like, you know, back in the early days, pre-1.0? Pre so, back in the day, we were building Sourceler, which is an online developer environment in the browser. So, you just log into Sourceler and you just go there, and we spin up servers, databases, and everything you need. And uh, before Docker, we were doing it by hand, let's say, in a really bad way. So, it wasn't really secure and it wasn't really nice. And uh, random day, uh, a friend comes and says, you know, have you heard of this Docker thing? It's really nice. It's, it's got containers, and you can uh, use it for all those, uh, all those. It's do it, and it will be fun. And that's how I got started with Docker. And uh, because it was pre 1.0, we, we get to know all the uh, low-level stuff, because back then it wasn't so advanced as it is now. There was no orchestration, no um, multi-machine networking, that kind of uh, interesting stuff. Um, and then uh, from that time on, it started being uh, almost on my daily basis, uh, doing, de doing development, doing production, deploying to, for social and for other customers. And uh, I mean, it's really fun. Docker is fun, so why not use it yeah. for everything? Yeah, I mean those early days, and if you have, if you weren't someone who was around early with Docker, uh, we didn't have the Docker, uh, we didn't have a lot of the Docker networking features. We didn't even have Docker volumes at all. That wasn't, you know, volume management wasn't really a thing yet. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I'm glad those days are over. It was it was fun time to experiment with new stuff, but it's nice when it just works. Um, yeah, I think. Uh you only had the option to mount a directory inside the container, but there was no the notion of volumes and how you bring like blocks or devices into containers and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because who needs persistent data? We don't really really need any of that. It's all it's all stateless web services, right? Isn't that how everything runs? <laughs> Correct. I mean, so who needs databases anyway? Right, right. They're just a real big pain. I really wish we didn't have to have them. Um, so what are you doing now? What's uh, what's like the latest for you? Uh, in, in your career with working with containers and stuff? So uh, I have started for almost a month now, maybe more than a month now, um, to a new company, which uh, you mentioned, it's called eFood, which is uh, the, the local company in Greece. And uh, we also uh, have presence by the mother company called uh, Delivery Here in Other Countries. Um, I'm doing a lot of stuff there, like, um, doing Python services, Golang services, and also helping with uh, the transition with containers. But aside from work, I'm also playing with some other uh, side projects we're doing by my old friends and co-workers at Sourceler, like uh, how do you deploy Docker in, Docker in different um, uh, environments, for example, how do you do it uh, with Swarm? And uh, we have some open source tools, maybe we can uh, uh, talk about them later. Uh, how do you deploy Docker, Docker in Docker containers in, in Swarm? which was really interesting for us to do. Um, and we generally do a lot of things around the containers. How do you uh, deploy and develop in containers in a better way? I mean, you've done uh, great work with uh, Node.js there, but we're more on the Python side. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't have a Python uh, best practices. Maybe that's something we can do together. Uh, I, I get sure. a lot of requests for Python 
because I have a I have a pretty old bad one for PHP that needs updating. Um, but I don't have any current PHP projects, so it's tough for me to spend time on that. Um, I accept PRs, you and the internet, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> pull request, welcome. Uh, so yeah, we there's a lot of Python people out. There's a lot of Java people out there, and and those are two environments that it's not it's not always obvious exactly how you're supposed to do all the stuff in containers. But it was this, a similar problem with Node.js, right? Where do I put the packages in the container? Do I bind mount the packages? Do I you know, how do I make it most of the most efficient image? Um, yeah, lots of stuff like that. Casting npm install, which is a big pain in Node.js projects. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, uh, if you, I think if you just go to brettfisher.com, there's right on the front page there. There's a, a, a thing about my Node course, and on that page, there's information about uh, DockerCon this year. Um, which, sorry, but you didn't get to see each other at DockerCon. Um, I did a I did a whole talk on Node.js and for like 40 minutes I just basically vomited every possible thing I could think about Node.js configuration in Docker. <laughs> uh and and I went really fast and it was the first time in a talk where I literally ended the last slide, looked down at the timer and it went 3210 and I was like nailed it. <laughs> so maybe that's Good your next time. talk is maybe Python Python and containers at DockerCon 2020. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I'd like to to put more content on the internet because it's uh, something that I've seen many people struggling with, and I think uh, from all our experience with uh, Python containers, we can do really nice work there. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and and Python PyCon was the place that Docker was announced originally. So, uh, mm -hmm. any love that we can give the Python community is, uh, I'm sure, you know, they're big. They're the original fans of Docker, so that's uh, that would be a good thing. So let's yeah. uh, let's talk about. Um, so I'm assuming you're using containers in the eFood. Are you? How's that? What's that setup like? So for deployment, they we're not using containers yet. Um, maybe my first services with containers will go live during the next weeks. But uh, currently, we don't have any anything live with containers. Um, but uh, we're using a lot of containers for development. So all the development environments get spun up using Docker Compose and Docker, which is really nice. And uh, we're doing a lot of work to improve that. So it's, I mean, it's a work in progress, but I think, uh, I think we'll get there eventually. Cool. So you're, you're actually migrating what we would call traditional apps, non-container native apps that you're, you're making them work in containers. And I guess you're using it locally for development and eventually you'll have it working also in production. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I don't uh, think that there's a plan to move everything in containers, and uh, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I mean, you can use the best tool for the best uh, scenario every time, so yeah. we don't have to use containers all the way. Uh, but there are some services where containers would uh, be really helpful, and uh, these are the services uh, that have a priority right now. And uh, after that, I think um, all the developer environments would be... Um, uh, improved using containers. I mean, you can use uh, containers only for databases, which is uh, something that a lot of people are doing. Yeah. But you can also use containers for everything, like uh, uh, building your application containers, running it there, uh, connecting to external services, and run those services in containers on your machine to make it faster. I mean, there are many setups you can experiment and see the one that uh, fits best your uh, workflow and your day-to-day uh, -day usage. Yeah, and I'd say that... Um there's probably a lot more development and testing in containers than there is production of containers. So yeah, that's, I'd say that that's, 
uh, when you when you leave the the conferences that talk about containers where everyone's obsessed with them and it sounds like everything in the world runs in containers and you get into the real world where the rest of us live i think uh production is probably the last place that sees uh you know mm-hmm. because usually like you're saying if it's already if it's already working and your pr- deployments are going well and you're able to like mm-hmm. recover from bad deployments and you know all that stuff um then you know why completely disrupt that whole thing just to say we're doing containers um, mm-hmm. so, all right. So you're using Docker compose. That's a big thing. Uh, cause I talk about that a lot, uh, you know, as, as advocating for developers to use Docker compose. Cause I think it's a really great tool. Huge fun here. Huge yeah. Fun. <laughs> so you have lots of YAML files, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, nice YAML files because compose files are nice YAML files. I mean, they're small. You can easily understand what's going on there. It's not on the Kubernetes side. I mean, uh, I use Kubernetes, I like Kubernetes, but I mean, those YAML files, <laughs> they're crazy. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, uh, actually, there's a comment in the Docker Mastery Slack chat today. Somebody was um, talking about the fact that uh, so much YAML in their in their Kubernetes, and they were just sort of struggling a little bit with it, with all with all the different stuff that they have to put into YAML to get everything to work right. Um, so that is that Crazy. is a thing. It's like we 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 got away from scripts, and now we're just living in YAML all day. So. Um, you trade one one good thing, one bad thing for another potentially bad thing, I suppose. But it's declarative though, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's uh, you can version it, you can you can actually put it in a repo and make sense of it. So it's it's better than I think the alternative. Uh, and, and everyone has to write it the same way. Versus <laughs> when we wrote scripts, it's like I use fish for my scripts, and you have to use bash. <laughs> You know, uh, whatever. Yeah, somebody's always writing a different, uh, different script there. So you mentioned well, before that we were early talking earlier. You mentioned a couple of these open source tools. Um, I'm looking at um, Stolos. Is that how you say it? Yeah. So Stolos was um, our way at Sourcelet to. Okay, so Sourcelet created developer parts for you, and uh, then you could access those developer environments from the browser. And uh, that was fine for a lot of students or people who were freelancers, but for maybe companies or bigger enterprises, it was really hard to, to switch to completely do all the development in browser. So as an alternative, we thought how we could take all those remote development environments, but give them local uh, development experience. And uh, th- that was Stolos, which was later on open sourced. So what Stolos is trying to do is to boot all your developer environments in a cluster and then uh, synchronize the file system between your local local computer and the cluster and make it uh, work that way. So you develop your applications locally, but your applications run into a Docker cluster remotely. So it's it's like a quicker quicker, um, round of uh, development than, you know, committing, pushing, and then those commits going to a... So it's trying to, to do it. It's, uh, it's quite similar in a sense uh, with tools that came a bit uh, later, which were Draft, which I think works only for Kubernetes. I think it's, it's built from Microsoft. And uh, there's one from Google, I think, but I don't remember the name now. Uh, you said Draft, D-R-A-F-T? Or yeah, Draft. Draft. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that one either. A tool for developers to create cloud-native... I'm pulling it up on on Google. Oh, my browser's so, yeah, it's, 
So my browser's waiting. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, github.com slash Azure slash draft. Mm-hmm. Correct. And what does that do? I, I actually have not used it. So how is that the same thing? It's, it's similar. So with, uh, with Stolos, what you get is real-time file system syncing between your local machine and the remote one. So you just hit save, and then the application reloads into the remote environment. But using Draft, you can do things like, I think, Draft App, or like Compose App, or something similar, and then your application gets built and then redeployed. So it's, it's like uh, doing all the CI/CD stuff without actually going through Jenkins or whatever you use for CI/CD. I mean, pushing the GitHub, then GitHub gets pulled by Jenkins, and then Jenkins builds the application and deploys it. So in order to, to reduce that, uh, that circle, you just uh, do a local command, and this local command synchronizes the image from your local machine to the cluster. I haven't used it extensively, to be honest. Yeah. But um, they seem similar, so yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Draft create, draft up, and you're good mm -hmm. to go. There, I think there's a lot of, I mean, I, I need to start making, I feel like I need a list, because there's a lot of these tools lately that are yeah, trying to streamline, trying to get basically development even closer to your clusters, to your servers. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, there's, I know there's a, at least one startup that's completely focused on this. Um, I unfortunately can't remember the name of them, uh, where they're, you're basically, your local machines completely synced to a Kubernetes box and uh, mm -hmm. you, they have their own YAML file and you configure their YAML locally and then it's sort of transparent in the background. So that way you don't even have to run Docker locally at all. You just run their tool and it's running in a Docker container in Kubernetes in the cloud. And then uh, I'm not sure if they're, I'm not sure if they're actually forwarding localhost traffic, but they give you a URL that you use for uh, seeing your changes real time on um, mm -hmm. the cloud. So, of course, I guess it's really mostly for web development and things that you actually can see the interface in a browser. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense because uh, if you think about it, what you actually do is run one container or one service um, side by side with all your other infrastructure. But uh, when you try to do this locally, you have one of two options. Either have a staging environment and then hit that staging environment as a, let's say, quick solution, or you have to boot up everything on your local machine. But usually local machines are not clusters, so it's not yeah. as easy to do. Yeah, and um, but it sounds like you yourself, you spend most of your time in Docker Compose, which is local, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. So with Stolos, we focused uh, to be 100% compatible with uh, Docker Compose. So we can take your Docker Compose and deploy it to a cluster. So Very it's, cool. uh, it's a lot faster. Yeah. Um, it'll be fun. I mean, and now we have stuff like this in Visual Studio. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Visual Studio Code has all these amazing little add-ins that synchronize things that allow two people to pair coding. Uh, every day it seems like someone's showing me some developer tool that's a plug-in for code that solves some other problem that we previously had with a command line tool. We probably need to do an entire show just on Visual Studio Code plugins for development. And it, it, it's not all container stuff, but you know, it's, it's amazing what keeps coming up there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Also, the, the new announcement they made about uh, remote containers, remote SSH or remote WSL. So what they actually do is run your whole VS Code server remotely, either to WSL or to a container or to an SSH device. 
and then they connect from your UI to this uh, remote server, which is really interesting. That's how I do all my development now with WSL, actually. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Anyway, so what I was saying is that the, there are many times that you might need to run Docker in Docker. So Docker containers running other Docker containers inside the Docker server cluster. And this is something that's not allowed because in order to run Docker and Docker, you need a lot of privileges. So as a way around it, we created a simple uh, CLI tool using Golang, which um, what's actually doing is um, running the Docker and Docker container alongside a Docker Storm service. So you create the Docker Storm service with this uh, little CLI tool, which is also a Docker image, and then this Docker image goes on and does uh, all the other things. Why you might need this? If you ask uh, what we did, uh, what we needed it to was to create all those developer environments in different servers. So we needed to easily uh, create Docker containers to run other Docker containers inside Docker Swarm cluster because we're big fans of Docker Swarm. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, Docker Swarm is one of those things where I mean, obviously, we talk about it a lot on the show, but it's one of those things where. It works. It's so easy that you just wish it did everything, but then it would be Kubernetes, which would make it not easy. So <laughs> it's one of those challenges where they, you know, it's like, why doesn't it do this? Well, because not everybody needs that, or we don't have the people to add it, or whatever. And it's one of those weird places where it's just like, can we just get five more people to make a few more things in in Swarm to cover more use cases, and then, um, and then it would be like the perfect orchestrator. It'd be easy and useful in all the cases but um it's amazing though that it just works i mean you don't have to do any crazy shit to to get going you just uh, start it and then it works it's, yeah it's so awesome yeah and i think i think people that uh, try it and use it uh don't um uh, and and you know tr don't um until they find a reason that it just i think it just can't support they just can't find a workaround or a way to because there's a lot of things you can do where you know, you run Docker in Docker, you can run a Docker against the, the host from inside the container, you can you can sort of use things like bash scripts and for each loops in bash to simulate sort of reoccurring jobs. Uh, luckily, there's a PR uh, slightly related to all this. There's a PR that showed up um, in Moby Moby in the last week for uh, them working on the, the swarm jobs uh, mm -hmm. feature. So that's going to be an exciting thing to have a cron job feature set built into Swarm. So I know that that's coming up. And then after that, I think they're going to be working on some storage stuff, maybe. Uh, that, at least that's what they told us at DockerCon. So we can we can hope. When, we can hope. It's really nice. It was, uh, there was also a very nice uh, GitHub issue where you could uh, discuss all the needs that different people needed for jobs and cron jobs. And then out of this discussion came out this feature, which is really amazing to see coming being alive and you know using it. Yeah. So uh, if you're on the show and you're a Windows developer, um, Antonis and I were talking earlier uh, before the show about uh, the new WSL2 sort of pre-launch, uh, uh, not pre-launch, uh, alpha. It's not, it's not even really a beta yet. <laughs> Insider preview of this sort of uh, running a full-fledged Linux machine inside your Windows machine. And we realized that it would probably be better if we had a Windows machine and we remote we, we showed it and we actually talked about what WSL is doing. And then we also realized, well, since Docker doesn't really work with it yet, it'd probably be way more interesting for us to wait for for Docker to actually work in it. But we can at least talk about it. And in case those of you who haven't 
caught the news from Windows in the last, I don't know, what has it been, three, two, three weeks that WSL2 preview has been out? Mm-hmm. And so once you, can you give us a summary of, like, first, what is, what is, what is even WSL and what is version 2 and all that stuff? So WSL is something that's uh, been in Windows for, I think, a couple of years now, or maybe a year or more. Uh, it stands for Windows Subsystem for Linux, and it's a way to run Linux programs in your Windows machine. So when it first started, it was really amazing, since what they did was translate kernel commands from Linux to Windows. So if you run a, a Linux program, then this program is dynamically being translated to Windows when it runs, which was really interesting, but uh, they realized that uh, this was really uh, slow for new developments because they needed to recreate the whole kernel for Linux every time they had new changes. So what they did in the second version of uh, this, uh, I don't know, tool or program or whatever you want to call it. Feature, it's a Windows feature. Feature, feature, correct, nice. (laughs) Was uh, to actually create a virtual machine inside your Windows machine, which is running Linux. So you get a, a free VM. Uh, I think it's available only for Windows Pro at the moment, but I'm not sure about it. And it does uh, work on this... home. I actually have it running on Windows Windows 10 Home. Okay. So yeah, it's very. So, that's one of the exciting things about it is they finally, yeah, Windows okay. 10 Home. So is they added support for home too, and uh, you create a VM, but you don't have to manage this VM. You don't say how much RAM or CPU cores you want it to take or anything. It just uh, grows and shrinks as your workload inside the VM grows and sinks. And the amazing thing about uh, Docker and this uh, VM is that initially this wor- Docker works on WSL2 because it didn't work on WSL1, which is one great stuff. And the second interesting thing is that uh, Docker for Windows, which is a distribution of Docker for Windows computers, is going to use all these new technologies introduced in WSL2 in the blog post that Brett <laughs> has on screen right now. Yeah. Um, and I mean... If you've used Docker for Windows before, your experience might not be ideal because they had to monkey patch a lot of different things in order to make it work. But now if they utilize the new WSL2 features, I think that the new experience will be really amazing. I mean, I've been using Windows for for the last month. I switched uh, from Mac, which was my primary operating system in the past. And uh, I believe that the new developments in WSL2 are really amazing. So, I mean... Maybe we can talk about it in another show and do some demos too. But uh, for now, what I would like to say is that they've done a really nice job. So really happy to be on with the Windows side. Yeah, and it's nice because it seems like, I mean, I don't know if they're going to keep the original WSL 1 after 2 because there was advantages to 1 um, and there's advantages to 2. They're, they're quite different, actually, in the way that they get you to use the Linux mm-hmm. subsystem and uh, I, it's nice that you don't. I'm not sure if they're going to keep both, and if we can sort of use the best of both worlds, uh, because there will be some people that won't be able to use WSL2 because maybe the, um, you know, like WSL2 requires Hyper-V and WSL1 didn't. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the th- big things was um, WSL2 because it required Hyper-V. Everybody thought Windows 10 Home wouldn't be able to use it, but they're they're saying now that they're they're putting the underpinnings of Hyper-V into Home. So that the home edition, because a lot, a lot of the students in my courses, their their home computers are Windows 10 Home. Their office computer might be Pro, but they're wanting to use Docker and Linux at home, mm-hmm. and uh, they don't, you know, they don't they don't want to pay the hundred dollars to get the Pro upgrade. And so I, I'm hoping that this is going to be like the way we all get 
Docker on Windows 10 Home, basically. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, in fact, it's really, really interesting. Really interesting. And I think that they're going to to reduce all the different uh, um, feature comparison that you get with WSL1 and you don't get with WSL2. And then maybe they do the default or the only option, I think. Yeah. Docker put up a blog post on this. So uh, their engineering blog, which is not, I guess it's separate from their main blog. And they talked about that uh, basically when WSL2 ships, what we're all predicting is going to happen is in 2020, if you're a Windows developer for Docker, um, or in other words, if you're using Docker on Windows for anything, uh, that we will basically get not just a better and faster performant experience for Docker mm-hmm. on Windows, but also Windows 10 Home will now get to use Docker Desktop. And if you're of those few people that are on non-Windows 10 machines, like Windows 7, Windows 8, which occasionally I get people that are still using those machines, you st- you're still going to have to upgrade to Windows 10. But once you get to Windows 10, at least home, finally we'll all be able to use Docker Desktop instead of having, uh, you know, because like in my, when we go to, I go do workshops, it's always tough because I'll have Mac people on Docker Desktop, Windows people on Windows 10 Pro on Docker Desktop, Linux people that are just using Docker, and then Windows, like Windows 8 or Windows 7 or Windows 10 home people that are using Docker Toolbox, which is this old, legacy tool that doesn't really support all the modern things of Docker. And yes. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a, it'd be nice for us to get rid of toolbox because Docker keeps trying to deprecate it. Like, uh, and, and I, keep t- I keep telling them, I got like 20% of the people that are still using it in my courses. Like you can't get rid of that. So hopefully it's like hopefully. Internet Explorer. That's right. We've just built the entire internet for this browser, and now you want to get rid of it. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's fun actually. What we uh, end up doing on our courses is uh, using uh, Docker Swarm DND, the the previous project, in order to boot containers for all the students, and uh, they'll be able to access them through um, a web interface. So that was one of the reasons we created this tool yeah. to be able to to circumvent the situation with people having Windows, Linux, Mac, or whatever machines in their trainings. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Browser-based Docker is something always easier than anything local, especially if like the people don't have local admin or they're, they got some sort of firewall or security restrictions. Um, but at the end of the day, like most of us still don't want to develop in a browser. No. Right? But, we still want to but do- with trainings... It's it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's trainings. I guess my pro- my my challenge is I, I always want people to leave the training with as much real world local stuff as they have. And if I they leave the the work the work they go back to work and they're like, what we did there was great, but it was in a browser and I don't have that anymore. And now I got to figure out how to make it work on my machine. That that's always like a, a tough spot. I, my my passion is still to have them leaving with the exact setup they're going to use in their real world uh, rather. But you know. Obviously, you can't always do that in like a three-hour workshop, right? If you have a really short workshop, you can't spend all that time on people doing setup. So it's to, it's cool to have tools like this. And of course, we got Play with Docker and and other stuff too. If you uh, if you need that stuff, so we're promising now. Basically, Antonis is going to come back on the show in a future episode where we can actually run Docker in WSL two, and we can look mm-hmm. at all the benefits of that and uh, see how it's going to get better for Windows people because that's, that's going to be exciting. Uh, all right, so this is the time on the show. Thank you so much for hanging around. We're a little bit late to the questions, but if you've hung out long enough, I'm gonna we're gonna run through the questions real quick in chat and do a quick fire 
answering the questions. If there's any for Antonis, uh, certainly ping him in the chat. Um, and you can cherry pick those if you want. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with the, the early ones. We've got a bunch of highs. Highs from Canada. Justin saying, hi, Brett. Love your podcast. Thank you so much. Justin, by the way, if you're someone who's interested in podcasts and wants to run your own podcast or you want to think of launching your own podcast, um, uh, Justin didn't uh, pay me to do this or anything, but uh, let me let me show you a little bit of something here. Uh, he runs... He co-founded this cool little company called Transistor. And uh, Transistor uh, is, let me see if I can get the browser window up here. Transistor is basically a podcast hosting solution. And what's cool is that uh, it's based on the number of people that that are listening to your podcast. So it allows you to sort of pay as you grow. And uh, it's been super easy to use. It's where I host... The Docker and DevOps, the DevOps and Docker Talk podcast, which is where this show goes when we go audio only. Um, so you can check that out uh, at transistor.fm. It's uh, actually hidden up there at the top of the screen. Uh, transistor.fm. It's a really great tool. I preferred it. I've looked at all the other solutions out there, and the, the one of the things I love about Transistor is they allow you to own everything, complete control of your podcast and your. Uh, stuff where some other solutions and there's free solutions out there too that uh, they're, what they're really doing in the background is they're maybe uh, using ads to pay, you know, they're putting ads in your podcast or they're controlling what your podcast is doing and you're, you're basically providing them free content. Where Transistor doesn't do any of that. It's sort of like the, uh, uh, it just lets you own everything yourself and it gives you all this, this really cool dashboard. In fact, I'll, let me just show you this dashboard um, because I, I'm... People are always asking me about my tools and like, what do you use and all that stuff. So let's just show you. Uh, so this is the DevOps and Docker Talk podcast uh, that we start. I started earlier this year, and it's really easy to use. I can just jump in here and go into the episodes. I can look at analytics. I get all this cool analytics stuff. I can control all my social uh, connections and integrations. That automatically tweets out new episodes and all sorts of stuff like that. So check out that stuff at transistor.fm, and then reach out to Justin on Twitter and say hi. And tell him if you if you sign up, just tell him you uh, learned about it from Brett, and you know maybe he'll give me like a you know a free month or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's not why I'm doing it. That's not why I'm doing it. It's a cool product. Um, but anyway, uh, back to the questions. So yeah, back to the questions. I think uh, there were some uh, networking questions about the Docker Swarm. I think uh, John Bezok, sorry if I'm not saying this correctly, is uh, asking. Uh, how do you manage different uh, external IPs in a Docker Swarm cluster? And I'm not really sure what uh, he's trying to, to say here, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> uh, uh, he's trying to route different IPs, different services. So what you could do in this uh, in this case, I think you could actually say that this um, this uh, service mounts to a specific external IP. And then this IP is, is the only one which is going to be routed inside Swarm. Another solution would be to have an edge proxy like traffic or maybe Nginx with your own configuration. And then say, okay, if this, this is the incoming IP address, then route it to this container. And if this is the other IP address, route it to the other one. But in this case, beware that if you're using the load balancing solution from Swarm, um, you will not be able to do it. And you have to bind uh, the container directly to the port using uh, host uh, host bind, I think. Do you remember Brett? What's the yeah the, using host network? Yeah, you got to host network. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't have so, any more information than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not sure if that was the question, but if you're trying to, to do this, then maybe you have to surpass the, the load balancing uh, layer of Swarm and uh, do it on your own. Cool. Uh, there's one up top about... Um, uh, uh, what is an option in layers? Biker2010 says something about, I finally got... Um, TLS end-to-end to work was terminating in, at interlock proxy, but proxy has no option to insert HSTS string. Went E to E, I'm not sure what E to E is, or end-to-end uh, to use my That's own true. Apache conf and SSL conf. Why is an option in layer seven? Um, I'm not sure if you're asking me why isn't there an op, if you're asking me why isn't there an option in Docker Enterprise for you to mess with HSTS, I have no idea. And you should talk to the Docker team. <laughs> yeah, but uh, what you could do there is even if you terminate TLS on the on the proxy side, I think you can return the HSTS header from your application. So you can do it this way. You don't have to, to do termination inside your application. You can just return the header. I think it's just a header. Yeah. Um, do you know if that... Yeah, because he's talking about the interlock proxy inside of Docker Enterprise, I think. Not sure. I think yeah. I think he's talked about it a little bit on the show. He's asked questions related to that before, and I and I'm not sure. Sorry if we're not giving you specific uh, answers. Um, of course, if you're still on the show, you can always add more information uh, down at the bottom. We'll get to it. John asks another question: Is there any way to store more than two Docker Swarm service specs by default? There are uh, current spec and the previous spec. Uh, so uh, you're talking about the service definition, I believe. And no, there is no way to store more than two service definitions in Swarm. It, it's a toggle, so it, it allows you to have the current one and the previous one for rollback. If you need the, uh, if you need to basically have more configurations than that, then my recommendation is what you're you're doing is you're versioning your stack YAML. I'm assuming you're using stacks, not services directly, but you're you're basically versioning the YAML. And I would look at the Docker app CLI, which uh, is. It's now built into the Docker CLI in the new beta 1903, but in previous one in previous versions it was a separate download, Docker-app. And you can use that to take your image, your your YAML for stacks, version them as tags, and push them as images, which means you have sort of infinite rollback capability by simply redeploying old YAML files that are images. So you would do a Docker app, I think it's deploy, Docker app deploy, and then specify that image and that tag. And you would treat your, basically your deployments, your stack deployments would be treated like versions of your code, where it would be the entire config, including every, you know, all the things in it, networking and different image versions and all this stuff. So that's the way I would operationalize rolling back to even farther than just the previous version. Really, if you think about it, the service definition that's known as the previous service definition, that's really just there in case you're doing a rollout of something and there's a problem you can then do a rollback to the known good configuration, but it's not really meant as a history, uh, you know, going back in time so you can see everything that was ever always done, right? That's kind of what your Git repos should be for. And if you're doing something like GitOps, where you're putting all your YAML into re- repositories and treating that like you treat code and you're deploying from there, then uh, that, that should solve that problem for you, John. Hopefully that helps. Yeah, it's, it's usually not a rollback, but a new deployment to a previous commit. So always think about it like this. Like, okay, let's say that you have the latest commit deployed, then go back and deploy a different commit, which will have 
possibly a different YAML file for this for your stack and different code for your application. So it's it's like redeploying, not rolling back, in my opinion. Rolling back right. is only useful if it's being done automatically. So you have health checks, for example, and you say that if I try to deploy and something fails, roll back to the previous version, which also an option is swarble. Yeah, in fact, I don't I rarely see in production clusters people manually doing rollbacks. What mm -hmm. I normally see is that you when you do a Docker stack when you do a stack deploy or a service update and you've specified the rollback uh, the failure option as rollback. I actually talk about this in my Docker uh, Swarm Mastery course. Um, if you set that up so that basically if the container deploys or it fails to deploy or the health check fails to do that auto rollback to the previous version, that's what I see the rollback really being used for and not so much people typing Docker service rollback a lot because usually uh, if you've got good enough testing and good enough health checks, uh, you've done all that and you don't typically have failed Basically, you don't typically roll out code and then hours later realize, oh, we need to do a rollback. It's usually pretty quick, and the auto rollback. Hopefully, the health checks and stuff caught that, and they do an auto rollback for you. So, um, John also asks, why does Moby Project have so much open and unresolved issue? Thirty five hundred on the GitHub repo. Do you see a positive dynamic? Um, my opinion on that is that Docker doesn't auto close issues. Uh, at least I'm aware mm -hmm. of. Um, so you're going to find lots of old issues that aren't even relevant, and they only have so many people that go clean up old stuff. So, you know, like if I were to go into issues, open, can I do, uh, do sort by oldest? You know, there's there's issues from 2013. <laughs> Uh, like there's one in the, the oldest one make compression when pushing to a private registry optional um, and that what's funny is I think that's actually fixed I believe that there's a CLI option now for compression and not compression um, I don't remember <laughs> seriously guys there's still no way to indicate hey I don't care about compression give me max speed of pushing images in my local registry um Hmm. No, I guess, yeah, okay, so, yeah, like, the, even the latest issue, anyway, it's a bad example. I'm not showing it on screen, so I'm not going to uh, dive into these issues, also, but I don't, see, I don't see it as an indicator of anything. I think it's when you have millions of people using your product, and they're using it every day, I mean, there's, there's exponentially more people using Docker, the engine, than any other container tool. Um, so, you know, go find... I don't. I don't know of another one that <laughs> the Linux kernel. I don't know. <laughs> that's not even fair because that's um, that's you know. There's lots of people behind the Linux kernel, and Docker is really just uh, one company that's working on the Docker engine. So I don't think it's an in indication of anything. Uh, I think it just means that a hell of a lot of people use it, and there's a open issues that people they don't auto close. If you go in a lot of open source repos, they auto close your issue after after 90 days of inactivity, which means that probably two thirds of these issues would have been auto closed. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know, what, what's your take? Also, I think, I think there are also a lot of issues in, uh, in Docker that are like, I'm using XYZ in Docker, and this is not working. So it's not a problem of Docker, actually, but it's, it's a tool. On top of it, or inside Docker. So maybe. Yeah, I think, uh, 
people misuse sometimes the GitHub issues to report their own user like problems using the tool versus actual bugs uh, because they don't or they need to know how to use something and they don't know about the forums or any of the other places you can go. Uh, and Docker doesn't auto close those. Uh, they're just been they've whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I feel like they're just trying to be nice and not immediately close things they don't think are relevant. Uh, but what that ends up being is a lot of open issues. So they do a lot to triage them and assign them to different areas like security or bug and stuff like that. So if you go through there, you'll notice they have a bunch of different labels. And some a lot of them are feature requests, people wanting new features that, you know, it's open source. So Docker is going to build the features that motiv- you know help them get more market adoption and and, you know, make money but they're not going to implement every possible feature. In fact, I think that was one of the things uh, Solomon talked about early on was it's easy to say no. Uh, you, you say no, it wasn't. Saying no is temporary to a new feature. Uh, saying yes is forever. And mm-hmm. Once you make that software feature, you don't have to support it forever. So um, I think a lot of it is them just, you know, it's a combination of things, right? New feature requests that they're not going to do. And they don't close those either as, as far as I'm concerned. They um, they let the discussion stay open until it starts to get irrelevant or like off topic, and then may, they might actually close it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, John asked another great question: Is there any news about upcoming Docker nineteen oh three release? Do you know why the next release is delayed? I'm sure that it's delayed because of quality, and they're adding significant new features. Um, my expectation is that it's going to be released this month, but I don't have like as far as I know, the Docker team does not even have a fine like. No one inside Docker has told me a date that they're launching, but um, the last I heard it was goal was this month. So. Yeah, I think uh, now they're trying to synchronize all the different releases for community edition and enterprise and everything. Maybe they're trying to make sure that it's super stable when they don't do any you know, mistakes or something. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot more in this release than in previous releases. We've now got new Docker command line plugins. Uh, there's just a lot. There, there's this new thing called Docker Desktop Enterprise. Uh, they're updating the doc, on the Docker Enterprise side. They're updating the Docker uh, or Kubernetes 1.14. Like there's so much going on with this one release um, that I think they just uh, decided to delay for continual. Uh, like if you go and look at the release cycle, there's um, constant uh, sort of updates to the. Let's just go look mm-hmm. while we're sitting here talking. Um, If you go to Docker CE releases, oops, wrong browser. Uh, let's see. Sorry. You can see that. Um, uh, let's keep scrolling. The nineteen oh three RC three. So they're on release client three, and. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. The nice thing about Docker is that they don't set release dates because they want to focus on um, quality. So they don't. And also, you know, features that, that make sense. I mean, as an increment. Yeah. Yeah. So I would I would say let's hope for this month. Uh, I think that originally the the goal might have been last month, but I think they pushed it just for, to improve quality. My guess is um, I don't have any more specifics than that, but. Um, let's see. Let's find another, let's find some more questions real quick. Oh, let me, let me try. 
Oh, I see a nice one about uh, Swarm and Kubernetes adoption and uh, why Kubernetes is going faster in uh, development terms. Would you like to start this now discussion, Brett, or maybe not? <laughs> no, that's fine. Which uh, who who asked it? I think it's John uh, uh, Bizok, if okay. I said correctly again. It's a bit. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Upper. So um, there's a, there's a lot of discussion around the swarm being dead or something. Um, I believe that there are many people using swarm. I see we have customers running swarm. Brett has a lot of customers running Swarm. I'm, I'm sure about it and I'm aware about it. There are many enterprises running Swarm on Docker Enterprise. I don't think that Docker Swarm does not uh, get adoption, though you see a lot more companies uh, being centered around Kubernetes. And I think the main reason behind that is that not by but uh, it is backed by the community. So they see more fit there because they can have more control if things go south. So that's that's my my take about it. Uh, but I don't think that uh, Swarm does not get uh, some load. There's a team that's dedicated to Swarm. It's it's a small one uh, compared to Kubernetes, but uh, there's a team. And um, I believe that uh, seeing that many projects are trying to give an, interfa- an interface to Kubernetes that seems like Swarm, meaning that it's uh, it has less features and it's more easy to use, I believe that Swarm makes a lot of sense. There's all, there was also a very nice um, review uh, from uh, DigitalOcean, I think. Uh, I think Brad Yu had uh, sent it to me uh, back in the time that uh, says that smaller teams tend to use Swarm more often, which is pretty logical if you think about it. I don't know. What's your take? Yeah, um, very much the same thing. So, I mean, I think... Uh, the direct answer to your question is the Swarm team full-time is one developer right now. Mm-hmm. They are hiring. Uh, at DockerCon, we heard a lot from them. Basically, the two, the 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 manager and the developer both got on stage for, an, I don't know, an hour and a half at DockerCon. And that session, I don't think, I, the last I checked, it wasn't on YouTube yet. Um, but they basically were saying, look, we've basically had a, people leave Docker. And so we need to hire new developers and we have they've he said a lot of things like one we didn't deliberately shrink the, the swarm team people just happened attrition people just left for other startups and it's silicon valley right so um and he pointed out that no one has ever left the swarm team to go for the kubernetes team that's not p- people assume that like they're getting rid of swarm so they're moving people from one team to the other and he said that's never happened uh it's just simply about People, different people, in different teams leave the company. It just so happened that uh, the two, I think, two of the other developers that I know of on the Swarm team left in the last year. So, uh, and he was talking about that it's actually quite hard to find really good uh, distributed systems developers, essentially. And that he was like, "Hey, anyone in the audience want to come work on Go and distributed systems? We're hiring." So uh, the other thing is that Docker Swarm is open source, just like Kubernetes, but uh, Swarm never caught on adoption uh, in terms of open source. Um, basically, every other IT company in the world, every other vendor has figured out a way to make money on Kubernetes. So they're all doing that, right? So the the number of Kubernetes developers, and uh, this is something that I actually rant about a little bit in my um, in a workshop that I do, the Swarm versus Kubernetes uh, workshop, is that there are zero people paid on the planet to market Swarm. 
No one's mm-hmm. doing it. Uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people uh, paid to market Kubernetes. It's not. It's not necessarily Google. It's every company that can that builds a product on top of Kubernetes or wants to deploy Kubernetes. They're all marketing it, and it's a it's a gold rush of everyone wanting to say we we deploy Kubernetes. We I mean even NetApp, the storage company, has their own Kubernetes distribution, and they're selling Kubernetes. Right. So uh, it's this isn't a bad thing. It just means that the dynamics of these two products are different, and. Kubernetes has lots of movement and lots of features and lots of products and growth in the industry. It's it's to the level right now of it's just overwhelming and and all consuming. Swarm, basically, it's Docker, right? Docker uh, and Docker doesn't prefer which orchestrator you use. They their product runs three different orchestrators and uh, Swarm Classic, Swarm, and Kubernetes, and they don't actually care which one you use. Their product out of the box by default is Swarm as the main one, but um, you can always you can run Swarm and Kubernetes side by side in the same cluster, and they're the only product that does that. So all the other products in the market force you to use Kubernetes, um, which is great if you want to use Kubernetes. But if you want a simpler setup, the only option you really have is to use Swarm and Docker Enterprise if you want a paid offering. So that's kind of like the 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 market and. It's a good and bad thing. I would love to say that there's 12 developers running on Swarm and they're adding features rapid, rapidly. But I think right now, all the focus at Docker is about how to get profitable. Like as a company, they're just trying to get to uh, to a profitable year, a profitable quarter and a profitable year so that they can show that, you know, that the growth they're having is actually you know going to be able to pay back the investors because they are a startup that has taken lots of investor money. Um, so... Right now, it's not. I don't think. It, I mean, this is like not insider baseball. This is just me speculating. But I don't think they, uh, you know, their customers almost always use Swarm in some capacity, and those people that want more advanced stuff that Swarm doesn't do, they just turn on Kubernetes. Like it's literally a like a you go to a web page, you click a button, and boom, that node is now Kubernetes, not Swarm. And then they get all of the Kubernetes stuff out of the box, like the, the advanced networking. The, the storage plugins, the S, uh, SNIs. And so for them, they're like, yeah, this, these nodes over here are Swarm, these nodes over here are Kubernetes, we're all good. And so I don't think Docker as a company is motivated right now to add a ton of new features to Swarm, especially for the open source version, because I'm not sure that their customers are going to you know, buy, more, you know, buy more of Docker if you know, Swarm had you know, like the jobs thing that they're now adding, right? Uh, they could just use Kubernetes for that. So it's a it's a weird area where I where like there's a lot of us that love Swarm and we know a lot of people that use Swarm, but there's not a lot of people in the open source community giving new features to the Swarm team, and the Swarm team is only one person right now. So hopefully they'll get their hires this year and they'll have a couple of people on the team and they can you know they have lots of plans. If you went to DockerCon, you learned that they were focusing on storage this year. They want uh, the, the the jobs cron stuff this year. So yeah, let's hope. Otherwise, we can uh, only yeah. hope. Otherwise, we you know use Kubernetes. Um, yeah, and Biker was right. He was like, uh, and Biker I think was there at DockerCon. He was uh, he was saying, yeah, uh, I really like the Swarm team. All two guys. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just two people right now. Um, all right, so I think we're coming to the end there. Did you already try Firecracker Micro VM? As this is a John question, on the integration between ContainerD and Firecracker. I have not tried Firecracker. I don't know. Me neither. Yeah. Um, 
I don't remember what Firecracker is. Is it, is it another way to uh, deploy Kubernetes? I would say it's like uh, running containers, but not actually containers. They're like really small VMs, like that's reading through the web page now, and it's running on top of KVM. I think yeah. it's from uh, AWS. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, I think right now um, the real challenge with Kubernetes is that there are so many ways to do so many things. I'm very skeptical about mm -hmm. any one project. Other than Kubernetes and Helm <laughs> themselves, uh, I'm very skeptical about any one project dominating any part of the mar market because I think mm -hmm. we've just we've had so many people throwing out so many ideas now for like the last three or four years that we really need to sort of let things settle for a while and people just use things and figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, otherwise, you know, we're, we're going to end up right now. There's like 80 plus ways to deploy Kubernetes with di different distributions. And there's uh, 80 plus ways for different projects that are all about deploying apps like Helm, like other alternatives to Helm. And so there's so much choice. It's really, I think hard from an infrastructure and a, a, a you know, a DevOps perspective, it's hard to figure out what you should use because now we have cool things like Rio, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. from uh, from Rancher. The, uh, basically, it runs on top of Kubernetes and allows you to automate deployments of uh, Kubernetes apps using um, Knative, and I think it uses it uses one of the service meshes underneath. I can't remember which one. Uh, and my browser is freezing again, so I don't really know if that's going <laughs> to that's an indicator that it's going to start crashing again. again. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so I want to leave it at that and take it as a sign that we should get out in the sun and enjoy this 4th of July if you're in the U.S. If not, uh, we wish you were here and having a celebration with us. We'll have firecrackers this evening, and you'll see a thousand pictures on the internet of firecrackers that all look the same. And 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 that's what we do. Um, but uh, Antonis, tell everybody where uh, where they can find you on the internet. And uh, yeah, reach out to so you. I think that the best place to find me is on Twitter, which is uh, Twitter's com slash a calipedis i as my first name and calipedis as my last name and you can i think there's also a link on the youtube video if you want to find me there i'm also on the docker slack with uh, a calipedis again as a as a username and i mean everywhere you can find me on a calipedis so it's it's really easy <laughs> luckily yeah. um and i would love to chat about uh, containers docker development in containers or whatever you want and uh, I would be happy to uh, help you around if you are nothing. So, yeah, feel free to, to, to ping me. Okay. Well, this time it looks like I've lost audio. So now I'm going to have to give a goodbye to Antonis and the internet without actually hearing anything. Um, so today is clearly a day that we should not have gone live. We should have stuck with enjoying the 4th of July. Thank you so much, uh, Antonis, for being on the call and uh, thank you all for watching, and we'll see you next week, this, next, this time, next Thursday, on YouTube Live. Ciao. Bye-bye. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.